Morning, everybody. Good to see you on this Easter morning. If I haven't greeted you this morning, I'm greeting you now. Um, and it's a happy Easter because of what we celebrate today. And I know it's been a really, really tough week, as Nick shared, um, for many, many of us. So um, we're finishing um, our series on the book of Mark today. So I'm going to be finishing off with Mark chapter 15 and then Mark chapter 16. But it's also Easter and um, these two link up beautifully. So um, if you can listen to two messages folded into one. Can we do that? And can you encourage me? <laughs> so we've been working through this amazing book of Mark and learned many, many lessons from it. And um, I want to encourage you to keep thinking back about what you have learned over the last few weeks, because the worst thing that we can do is have gone through all this and learned nothing. Not so. It's like you have received a whole lot of new tools into your toolbox and you never ever use them. Amen, that's bad. So I encourage you, keep going back and um, using those tools again. The word of God is like a plumb line and it allows us to build straight and to build well. And um, this week, it's been a terrible week. I mean, what a week. We've seen widespread mayhem and devastation, lives lost, there's been lots of anxiety, lots of panic, lots of pain, and um, it's really been a terrible week. And on Monday evening as I lay in bed and the, the rain kind of like, every time it slowed down, it was, seemed like it was just taking another breath, and then it would like blast again. And um, I got up every few minutes to have a look, are the walls okay, is everything okay? And we heard a crash and a whole neighbor's wall had come down, and as I lay there, I thought about what the early disciples must have felt like after Friday. That Friday that they had crucified Jesus, they had walked with him for three years. They'd seen incredible miracles, incredible things happening. And now it had all just seemed to be a, a loss. A lot of blood had been, had been, um, had been spilt innocent blood, the blood of Jesus, their rabbi, the one who they had put their faith in, the one that, um, that, that they were looking to to save them. They'd seen a crown of thorns jammed on, on his head. They'd seen him beaten beyond recognition. They'd seen him nailed to a cross and they'd seen him die there. That was on Friday. Can you imagine how they must have felt? All that they'd put their hope in, their miracle worker, their way maker, their light in the darkness, he hung on a cross and he was dead. The priest said in Matthew 27 verse 42, he saved others they scoffed, but he can't save himself. So he is the king of Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross right now and we will believe him. Terrible. Just, um, we're gonna have some of the scriptures come up. I'm preaching from the New Living Translation, but because of our technical issues, we have the NRV on the screen. So I don't know if there's, don't read anything into it. <laughs> so you might be in a situation right now where it looks like all hope is lost, where it looks like the situation, situation is dead. But I want to tell you this morning that in Christ there is hope. And as you listen today, I want to encourage your heart to know that there is hope in Jesus. There is hope in Jesus. The Lord says to Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 37, he asks him a question. Son of man, can these bones live again? Can these bones live again? And if you read that whole story, you will see that those bones can live again. 
as we have gone through this Mark series and we bring it to an end today, we see that it ends in this victorious resurrection of Jesus, a great story. And the story is from the beginning of Mark, it's driving towards a point. Mark is driving his story on. And um, we celebrate this today, the, the culmination, the coming together of this whole story where we celebrate Jesus' resurrection, a weekend that changed the whole world. Mark, in his book, he uses the word immediately, that word immediately, he uses it 23 times, more than any other New Testament writer, he uses the word immediately, because it's almost to me like he wants to get to the good part as soon as possible. So he drives the story on, and as it comes to this great finale, though, as I mentioned earlier, I want to encourage you, let's not, let's not forget the lessons that we have already learned along the way. Amen. Can I have an amen? amen? Great. So the Bible records a lot of information about Mark. Luke um, mentions Mark's name numerous times in the book of Acts. And um, apparently there was a budding church in his mother's home. He also um, accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, but he went home early, and that's another long story. But later on, he traveled with Barnabas to Cyprus for more mission work, and he became significant in the life of Paul. And in fact, Paul mentions him in one of the last, the last chapter, the last letter that Paul wrote, the, the letter to 2 Timothy, he mentions him by name. Mark's mother's house must have been a regular stop for Peter because remember when Peter came out of prison and he got to the door, the servants even recognized his voice. So he must have spent time there for that to happen. And it appears too, as we heard, I think when France was shared during Mark, that he was apparently one of the people at Gethsemane that saw what was happening in the garden. We can see that in Mark chapter 14. Scholars believe that this book was written between A.D. 57 and A.D. 59. So Mark's gospel portrays Jesus in an incredible way. It portrays him always on the move. He's, he's moving forward. It, it, it portrays him as God's servant that he's come to save. And he shows right through the gospel that Jesus has come for a larger purpose. Something that is summarized in Mark chapter 10 verse 45. It says this. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And that is what Easter is all about. Mark filled his gospel with the miracles of Jesus, illustrating again and again the power and compassion of this incredible Son of God. So that brings us to our text today. As I said, I'm starting off with Mark chapter 15 from verse 42. And if you can try and read along with the NIV, I'll be reading from the NLT. This all happened on Friday, the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. As evening approached, Joseph of, Joseph of Arimathea took a risk and went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Joseph was an honored member of the High Council and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. Pilate couldn't believe that Jesus was already dead, so he called for the Roman officer and asked if he had died yet. The officer confirmed that Jesus was dead, so Pilate told Joseph he could have the body. Joseph bought a long sheet of linen cloth. He took Jesus' body down from the cross, wrapped it in the cloth, and laid it in a tomb that had been carved out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone in front of the entrance. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother, mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus' body was laid. So we have this picture. <clears throat> 
this man called Joseph from a place called Arimathea, he assumes responsibility for the body of Jesus. And in verse 43, it says he took a risk. Remember the other disciples had scattered and um, he though was a man of action. And amazingly, he goes to Pilate, probably at risk of his own life, and he requests the body of Jesus. I mean, he could have been arrested then as a supporter. And um, Matthew says that he was a rich man and a disciple of Jesus. Mark says that he was, was a respected member of the council who was looking forward to the kingdom of God. Luke adds that he had not consented to their decision and action. And in John chapter 19, I love this part, upon hearing of, of Jesus' death, this secret disciple, he goes and he takes the body of Jesus down. He gets permission. He goes and he buys this linen shroud or linen cloth and he gets the, the, the body down from the cross. And then according to um, John chapter 19, verse 39 and 40, he goes with somebody else, Nicodemus, a Pharisee who had come to Jesus at night in John chapter three. And the two of them, I just love the way that scripture places all this together. Here is Nicodemus who went and saw Jesus secretly as a Pharisee at nighttime because he wanted to know more about the kingdom of God. Now he's involved in burying Jesus. Their lives have been radically changed. They took the body down and they wrapped it in linen clothes that Joseph had bought. And Nicodemus, it mentions, had bought some spices with him. Not just a few, a hundred pounds of spices, almost 50 kilograms. Incredible. This is not just a half-hearted thing they're doing. They're doing their best to still serve the Son of God, to look after his body. They're doing their very best. They, they prepare the corpse and they put it in this, in this carved out tomb. And um, Matthew's gospel suggests that it was Joseph's own tomb. And they had to do it speedily, but still 100 pounds of spices wrapped in the linen cloth because the Sabbath was drawing on. And I just, as I thought about this, I just love this picture of these guys who are doing the very best with what they had. As we've seen the floods devastate KZN, we've seen people out there shoveling sand, doing the best that they can to get things right again. Incredible. They poured their own resources into this. Nicodemus had bought the spices himself. Joseph had bought the, the linen cloth himself. He was giving his own tomb for the burial. Recently, Robin was in hospital. And um, uh, upon hearing this, I got a message from Ravi and Vani. I don't know if they're here today. Ravi phoned me and he said to me, Hey, my butt, what's your favorite, favorite meal? <laughs> so what did I say? Sausage and mash. And that night, we had the best sausage and mash I've ever had. But the amazing thing was that he didn't just offer us a meal. He phoned and asked me, what's your favorite, favorite meal? That's what I'm bringing you. And I thought about Nicodemus and Joseph, these guys doing their very best. Nicodemus had been to see Jesus secretly at nighttime. He was concerned about eternity. And Jesus in John chapter 3 teaches him. And it is to Nicodemus that Jesus says these famous, famous words, probably the most quoted verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 
God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Verse 18, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. It was, uh, when I read this, I thought, this is incredible. This man who came and sought him out secretly at night, that this famous, famous verse, Jesus says this to him, for God so loved the world. Incredible. So they take him down and they, um, they wrap him, they anoint him and wrap him in spices. And then we learned in Mark chapter 14 about the woman with the alabaster jar who came and anointed Jesus with perfume. And remember, everybody wasn't happy. They, she anointed Jesus while he was alive. Now we see Joseph and Nicodemus anointing him after his death. They are still doing their very best. So let's keep listening. Um, chapter 16, Saturday evening, when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, went out, purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body, more spices to anoint him. So what does all this mean? Why so much anointing, so many spices? In Mark chapter 16, verse 10, the Bible says, it's a prophecy, for you will not leave my soul among the dead, or allow your holy one to rot in the grave. And it's a prophecy concerning Jesus. And um, Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 4, he views the timing of the resurrection as on the third day as a fulfillment of Scripture. But in actual fact, nowhere in the Old Testament is the resurrection of an individual associated with the third day. So what was he talking about? So there's a few opinions here. And um, some of them are opinions. I hope that you can hear the opinion. I don't want to give you my opinion. You, it might sound like it. And um, I hope it's okay with you. If you have a problem with it, you can, you're welcome to email me. My email is nick at... <laughs> Feel free. <laughs> Sorry, Nick. <laughs> So many times we see God delivering his people on the third day throughout scripture. And so people originally thought that this was why they, they mentioned that Jesus would be raised on the third day in, in, in the Old Testament. But um, somebody suggested that um, people knew that after three days in the grave, the decay to the body would start to happen. And then for that body to be resurrected would be really tough. So maybe that is why they anointed his body, that his body would not see the decay in the grave. But what's more interesting for me is that when Jesus raises Lazarus, he waits till the fourth day. Amen. And I think that what he was doing, he was showing the people that, listen, to me, it doesn't matter how dead the situation is. doesn't matter how dry the bones are. Can these bones live? Can your situation live? No matter what you're going through today, can that situation live? Can new life come to that situation? All things are possible to him who believes. With God, all things are possible. Amen? So he says to Martha when, when he raised Lazarus, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? Amen? Great lesson for, for us in that. So very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. This is verse 2. 
On the way, they were asking each other, these are the ladies, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But as they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. The woman was shocked, but the angel said, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Look, this is where the lady's body. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you before, his di- before he died. The woman fled from the tomb, trembling, trembling and bewildered, and they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. <clears throat> so prophecy had come true. Prophecy had come true. Jesus had ridden, risen from the dead. And they, they came there, they saw the tomb empty. What does the empty tomb mean for us? I believe it means a couple of things. That sin's ability to keep us from God is empty. That death's power to separate us from God is empty. That anything that would try and separate us from the love of Christ is empty. The tomb this Sunday morning is empty. Why? Because Jesus is not there. He has risen from the dead. He is alive. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians verse 15, verse 3 to 5, he expresses what most believe to have been a, a, a creed of the early church. And I'd love to read it. He says this, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he has appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the twelve. The empty tomb tells us that Jesus has risen bodily from the grave, from the tomb. He is alive and he's alive forevermore. And for us today, that is great news. That is the good news. That is the good news, that Jesus has conquered death, that he has paid the ultimate price for our sin, and he is alive. Amen. And that is where the book of Mark ends. But in after verse 8, your Bible will probably say something like this. The most ancient manuscripts of Mark conclude with chapter 16, verse 8. Later manuscripts add the longer endings. Now, there are various reasons for this. And if you research this, you'll find a lot of opinions about this. But um, what uh, some people say that the ending was damaged or it was lost. Others say that Mark intended it to end so abruptly. But um, what they say is, and, and this is research that I've done, not research, but on Google, <laughs> that 99% of, the, of Mark's manuscripts include verse 9 to 20. So we'll include it today and we'll carry on with Mark chapter 9. Can we do that? says this on, from verse 9. After Jesus rose from the dead early on Sunday morning, the first person who saw him was Mary Magdalene, the woman from whom, whom he had cast out seven demons. She went to the disciples who were grieving and weeping and told them what had happened. But when she told them that Jesus was alive and she had seen him, they didn't believe her. Afterward, he appeared in a different form to two of his followers who were walking from, the, from Jerusalem into the country. They rushed back to tell the others, but no one believed them. This was a story on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. Still later, he appeared to the 11 disciples as they were eating together. He rebuked them for their stubborn unbelief because they refused to believe those who had seen him after he had been raised from the dead. But I trust this morning that none of us will suffer from 
this stubborn unbelief that we will believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. He told them, then go into all the world, preach the good news to everyone. Anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved, but anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. These miraculous signs will accompany those who believe. They will cast out demons in my name. They will speak in new tongues. They will be able to handle snakes with safety. And if they drink anything poisonous, it won't hurt them. They will be able to place their hands on the sick and they will be healed. This is just so radical. To read these verses, I mean, it's mind-blowing. If you read all these verses, what an incredible promise. What a promise to us. I mean, there's deliverance, there's healing, there's protection, there's new tongues, all kinds of things happening. Beware of stubborn unbelief. Beware of stubborn unbelief. This is the good news to the world. The price for our sin has been paid. Man's greatest need is salvation. That's man's greatest need, the forgiveness of sin. And only when we realize the depth of our sin and just how far we are from the Lord can we truly have a revelation of our incredible need for a Savior. We were all, every one of us, like, excuse the term, like dead men walking. The stench of death was on us. Every one of us are going to die once. And what happens after that? Jesus came and he made a way for us to enter into eternity with him. We needed a savior. There was no way that we could get that off us. This is the good news and this is the revelation that we have to have all the time. Our responsibility, according to scripture, according to these verses, is to go and tell the world. Amen? Sorry, it's got so quiet now. There is something that wants to grip the church today. And this is really important for us. We need to be so aware of it. The thing that wants to grip the church today is me, myself, and I. We have seen to, to, to make that the most important thing. What's in it for me? Amen? God is calling us to a life of service. And this is so subtle that we need to be extra aware of this and extra vigilant of, of this, that we, that we do what God's called us to. So this verse, which says, go and preach the gospel to every creature, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, go and preach the gospel to every creature so that you can feel fulfilled. Or because that's your purpose. Those are byproducts. We are called to Preach the gospel to every creature because there is an urgency. There is an urgency. Jesus taught us how to model our lives. And so we need to model our lives after him. If he had this urgency and he was driving towards this time where he would die for humanity, we should be living according to his example. Amen? So Mark shows us as he presents Jesus that we need to be breaking out of patterns of, of self-absorption and, and giving ourselves firstly to God as our Savior, as our Master, as our King. Amen? Unfortunately, we have, we have been taught and thought that our greatest need is low self-esteem or a bad, poor self-image, or the importance of, a, of, a, of being positive in every situation, or other, some other kind of social issue. The problem is that those are all great for this life. But Jesus is concerned about the next life. He wants, us, he wants to help us into eternity. One day when we stand before him, as we all will, we'll need a savior. We will need him. 
as our Savior. Our greatest need will be to have our sin washed away. Amen. Jeremiah 2 verse 22 says this, No amount of soap or lye can make you clean. I still see the stain of your guilt. We need a Savior. And right throughout Jesus' life on earth, he constantly pointed to the incredible way that he would save humanity, his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And it's only through, through faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross that we can enter eternity, that we can find eternal redemption. Amen. And I, I, I'm sorry that this sounds so hard, but it's important that we, that we understand this, that, that, we, that we stress this strongly enough. Man's greatest problem is sin. The world is temporary. Our life here is temporary. God is more concerned about our, about our eternal destination. Yes, he is concerned about your situation here, but he's more concerned about your eternal destination. And that's why he came down in bodily form in the, in the body of Jesus and died for us. Verse 16, anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved. Anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved. So what if we're not baptized? We heard that um, on the first, we're having a baptism Sunday. If any of you wondered where it was, there's a, there's a pool underneath here. It's coming to winter. Better get it done before winter. <laughs> it's not heated. <laughs> so what if we're not baptized? So baptism is a crossing over. We are showing that we have died to our old life and risen to a new life in Christ. It is a command that, that Jesus gave us. So baptism doesn't save us. It's a, it's a step that we take to show that we have risen to this new life. And I think a good illustration to explain this is in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Paul refers to the Israelites crossing through the Red Sea as their baptism. So we all know the story. They were slaves in Egypt, and they escaped from Egypt. They got to the Red Sea, and, and Moses said, watch, and you'll see the Lord's deliverance today. And the, the waters parted, and they went through the Red Sea, and they came out the other side. The Egyptian army tried to follow them, but the waters closed over, and the Egyptian army was destroyed in the water. And the important thing that Moses said to the people, he said, the enemy that you see today, you will never see again. The enemy that you see today, you will never see again. And this is what baptism is. It is a passing through from slavery into freedom. It's a bringing of new life. The enemy cannot follow you through the waters of baptism. Enemy cannot follow you through the waters of baptism. It's a deliverance for you. And that's what it's showing. As we get baptized, we are showing that we are agreeing to that deliverance. We are moving out of slavery and into this, um, the promises and freedom that God has for us. So I believe that the scripture is telling us, repent and be baptized. Not believe and be baptized. Believe and be baptized. Repentance is not mentioned here, but it's actually involved in the sentence if you look at it. Because it's calling us to believe and then to act on that belief by being baptized. It's, it's, it's calling us to cross over into the life that God has for us. Can I explain it like that? It's calling us to move into God's promises. You cannot believe and not cross over. You cannot believe and stay in your sin. 
God's calling us out of it. He's calling us out of that land of slavery. Your sin will always enslave you, but God doesn't want you to be enslaved by your sin. He wants you to move through and come into the freedom that he has for you. All right. Remember John chapter 3 verse 18 says this, There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. So Jesus came and he died for the whole world. He made a way that the whole world could be saved. And yet many people are, are going to die and go to a lost eternity according to scripture. Why? For not believing in the son of God. For not believing in the son of God. One day when we stand before the father, he say, what did you do with my son? Amen. So we are saved by believing. Baptism is putting action to our belief. As John the Baptist called it, show forth the fruit of repentance. So verse 19, when the Lord Jesus had finished talking to them, he was taken up into heaven and sat down at the place of honor at God's right hand. And the disciples went everywhere and preached. And the Lord worked through them, confirming what they said by many miraculous signs. Okay, before we go on, I'm sure that many of you are thinking about one thing, one verse that I seem to have skipped over, but I'm coming back to it. What's the deal with the snakes and poison? <laughs> so if you go and have a look on YouTube, there are many opinions about this, but if you go and look on YouTube, there are churches that still bring snakes to their um, service. They bring them in a box and they say, listen, if you want to show us how much faith you've got, come and you can hold one of these rattlesnakes. Anyway, their numbers are declining. So, I believe that this verse, this verse is talking about God's protection in situations. That as we go out, as the apostle Paul did, he picked up some firewood and the snake bit him and nothing happened to him. There is protection as you go out. God is able to protect you. My advice, don't pick up snakes and don't drink poison. All right. God wants to make a way, but do not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 20. I covered that. And the disciples went everywhere and preached, and the Lord worked through them, confirming what they said by many miraculous signs. I love these words, confirming what they said. Confirming what they said. Have you ever gone and told somebody something, and then later on they kind of didn't believe you, and then the person that was involved comes along and says, yes, no, that is what happened. They're confirming what you said. How does the Lord confirm what we say? By many miraculous signs. It's incredible. It's incredible. We, we don't have to go and be superheroes. We can just go out and tell people about the love of Christ. Help people. Serve other people. Take a meal. Taking a meal to somebody, is just it shows that you care. And you know what God does something in their hearts. Amen? It's magnificent this. It's just incredible. The scripture talks about working hand in hand with the Lord. I mean, you know how nice it is to, to serve someone. We see, we see um, you see people being honored by a sports star or something like that, and they just love the honor that they're shown. Imagine when we are honored by the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus himself. I think that is incredible. Now, if we go back to verse chapter, um, chapter 16, verse 7, the angel says, go and tell his disciples, including Peter. And 
I've left this section to the end because I, I want to start closing off with this. Including Peter. God wants to restore people to himself. And we see this, that some translations say, especially tell Peter. Remember that Peter had denied Christ three times. And he left there with absolute remorse. And we see in John chapter 21, incredible story of Jesus reaffirming Peter, reestablishing incredible conversation of restoration happens there. I encourage you to read it in John chapter 21. Peter knew he had messed up by denying Jesus. He knew, I have messed up big time. This guy, in his moment of need, I wasn't there for him. I messed up. There's someone else that also realized he has messed, had messed up, and that was Judas. Judas, he knew he had messed up by betraying Jesus and he felt so bad, he filled with remorse and he went back to the, the Pharisees and he took the 30 pieces of silver and he gave it back to them and they said to him, he tried to return it, they said to him, that's your responsibility, we don't care. They put an extra burden on him and a religious system will always put an extra burden on you. Jesus will restore you. You see, they had both sinned against Jesus but Judas, he went to the Pharisees, to try and get his restoration. He wanted them to make him feel good, but they didn't. They put an extra burden on, on him, and he ended up killing himself. But I want to tell you that when we go to, to God, he is able to restore you. So many times we want to be made right by human means, and so we've, we've messed up or we've been caught out, and so we do things to try and appease ourselves almost like to pay penance, but it's not really a heart change. Jesus is calling us for that heart change. He's calling us to repent. He's calling us to believe in him. He's calling us to be baptized, to move through to the other side, come out of sin, come out of slavery, come into the freedom that he offers. Judas went and hung himself, and that's what happens when we try to be made right under our own means, in our own strength. You see, we've, we always sin against God. Our sin is always against God. It's, it's never against man. Yes, it might look like we have sinned against man, but when we sin, we, we have fallen short of God's standard. A religious system will always look to increase your burden, but Jesus is interested in reconciliation. He's interested in deliverance. He's interested in saving you. As I said, we cannot save ourselves. It's impossible. So often we have heard this term, give your life to Christ. But what does that really mean? What have we got to give him? We've only got sin and depravity to give him. In actual fact, what wants to happen is Jesus wants to give his life to you. Jesus wants to give his perfect life to you. And that's what the empty tomb means this Easter, that Jesus has been, he's beaten death. And unless we receive that, it, that, that free gift of eternal life, we won't make it. We cannot make it on our own. So I'd like to, to us to stand this morning. And as we do, maybe Mano can come up. <clears throat> and I'd like us to take a moment to reflect on this. Let's just close our eyes. And I'd like, as we stand with our eyes closed, just to reflect what this all means. And I'd like you to see a picture of you standing before Jesus. And you come to him with 
almost things that are, you are, are, are too ashamed of, things that you've maybe told nobody else that you're too ashamed to even mention to your very own family or your closest friend. And you come to Jesus and he sees that thing and he takes it from you and he says, take my life, take my perfect life. That's what Jesus does. That is perfect love. And he drives out all sin and all shame and all fear and all anxiety. He drives it out. And you stand fresh and new in the fullness, in the newness of life that only he can bring. And that might be you today that you have, might be here and you might be saying, I've never done this. I've never confessed my sin like that. I've never come to Jesus with my sin. But I would encourage you today, if that is you, would you be bold enough to raise your hand this morning? I'm not going to ask you to come to the front. I want you to just be bold enough to raise your hand and say, Lord Jesus, today, this is me. I need to confess my sin. I need to come to you. I'm carrying something so dark and so deep that I'm, I'm ashamed. I'm scared that somebody might find out. Jesus wants to take that thing from you. He wants to swap. He wants to exchange your life for his. He wants to give you a life that leads to eternity. And there's some hands that are raised. I'm going to ask us if we can all pray together as we, as we do this this morning. You can just pray after me. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning in the precious name of Jesus. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died on a cross for us. That you were laid in a tomb. And on the third day you rose again. And I thank you that in doing that, Lord Jesus, you took our sin upon yourself. And so today, Lord Jesus, I give you my sin. And I thank you that you give me your life, Lord Jesus. I ask you today, Lord Jesus, to help me to cross over into the fullness of life that you give. Help me to live for you because you died for me. I give you my life today, Lord Jesus. I ask you to be my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.